Well, we just sang some powerful truth. The text we're in this morning, and it just screams what that song just talked about. I want to start off this morning just by saying this, that if you are single or solo or childless at this church, that you are welcome here, that you're appreciated here, and listen to me, that you're needed at this church. I get that at this church, we talk a ton about family, about marriage, about adoption, and that's just part of the storyline that God's writing in this church family. But let me tell you, let me show off to you a great work of God that is happening at this place. It's that we continue to have people who, for whatever reason, are childless, who are not married and want to be married, who used to be married but are no longer married. And they continue to come to this church, and they don't believe my words that you're welcome and appreciated and needed here. They keep coming back because they have experienced that, that they understand that from from a core place, not because the pastor says so, but because that's the way this church family has functioned. I want to show off why it's an incredible work of the Spirit because of this. In the flesh, wouldn't it be so easy to have a spirit of scarcity that says, wow, there's not enough love to go around for us singles. We keep getting overlooked. And instead of causing division, instead of causing uh, problems in that, what I've seen is this. So many single people come and say, um, I don't have children uh, of my own yet or ever. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just lovingly, in a familial way, adopt kids who are here and pour into the next generation who keeps showing up at this church. And so, church, I want to just express to you, um, that is that is supernatural love. That's not love drawn up as we would do so in the flesh. That is supernatural love that God is working on. And I want you to know, those who fall into the category that I'm speaking to, that the prayer and the support is mutual. Not only do we need you, you need us. And church, I want to call you who are in the throes of raising children and having your hair on fire and having older people say, trust me, this will pass quickly, and you not believing them. I want you to remember in your prayer life individuals in our church family who don't fit in the the married with children uh, category and to celebrate um, God in that. Now, all of that being said, here I go again. I am going to talk about family and about marriage and about adoption because the text in Romans leads us directly into these themes. Here's what's amazing about God's great and glorious power. You don't have to be married to be the bride of Christ. Is that right? Of course not. And you don't have to be a parent to experience the depth of God's love for his children. You just sang a truth that is true for all Christians, whether they're parents or not. We get that. And finally, you don't have to adopt to understand the truth of that being uh, true of us as Christians. Um, Having adopted, I will say this, 
Just like when you get married, when you first have a child, there are aspects to things you read in Scripture that you understand in a, in a unique and different way. And having adopted, there are, some, there are some challenges and things in here that are powerful. I get to see physically in my family every day what is also true spiritually because of adoption. Uh, this church is well informed of this. But we have an orphan crisis happening in our world right now on our watch. And every Christian worldwide is, is, who is present, uh, is going to be giving an account for how we managed and what we did about it. And what's been so powerful is this, it's to see God's church continue to raise up and follow the Spirit's leading into some incredibly deep waters. Just two weeks ago, we did an interest meeting at Bernal Church. And there were probably 25 people in attendance at a Foster the Bay interest meeting. And at the end of the night, when people were asked, if you want to take a next step, then here, fill out this next step card. Here's what we discovered, that one of those families stepped forward to become foster parents, to begin the approval classes with the county. Friends, that's a work of God. You don't manipulate people into altering their life to do foster care. Four more families stepped forward and said, we agree to be support friends. That is, we are going to link arms with a foster family so that they are covered in this and not doing it alone. Two other people put on the card that they wanted to step in as volunteers in some significant ways. 25 people in attendance, a vast majority of them responding to the Spirit's call. I promise you, it's not because me uh, and Patty, who were doing the presenting that night, were so spectacular in our presentation. This is a work of the Spirit. One of the reasons this church has been so incredibly responsive to this, I believe, and if you aren't aware of this, um, just within the last couple of years, although we've had many through the years, just in the last couple of years, five families from this church have stepped forward to become foster parents through Foster the Bay. Uh, dozens more have come, stepped forward to be support friends so that they have coverage. Next week, you're going to get to hear a little bit more about this from Michelle. Uh, but um, but I, I believe one of the reasons this church has, has so responded in this way is that we root our motivation and our action in the orphan crisis to our theology. In other words, to our own adoption. I think there's such an understanding of that uh, that, that it has, has totally changed um, how we do things. You can say it this way, that as former orphans, we are committed not just about orphans, but we care for orphans. Remember, when you care about something, you can like it on Facebook, and now I care about it, right? That's caring for a cause. That's general, and that's easy. Nothing's required of you. But caring for a child without a family either due to neglect and temporarily because the parents are trying to get their act together and just need a loving, stable home for, for a season of time, that's caring for an orphan, and that's something radically different. You know, Christians for a long time have, obey, have been obeying the clear and simple command to care for orphans. Because we're in Romans, it's fitting that we, that we talk about this. But there was an ancient Roman practice. In fact, if you go back to ancient uh, Rome and sort of what civilization was like, the father in a family had utter control and dominance over things. And one of the practices that they, <coughs> that they had was this idea of exposing. When a child was born into a family, that child was brought as an infant before the, the father. And I don't know if they actually did what they do in Gladiator, where it's like, you know, thumbs up or... 
you know, thumbs down. But essentially, the father had total control over this, even as to whether that child lived or died. And if that father decided, no, this child is not going to be in my family, then that child was taken outside of the city and exposed, unclaimed, left to the elements. Now, because of the wickedness of the human heart, some of those kids were roped in and and made to do horrible things. Here's what Christians have been doing for a long time, and it's documented through all kinds of non-biblical sources that say the Christians, the Christians were the one who would go outside the city and they would reverse this verdict on the child and say, you are claimed, you are no longer exposed, you'll be part of my family. And they would rope them in and raise that child legally as their own child. And they would adopt them. That's the practice of exposing. And that's what Christians were known for. Why have Christians always done this and continue to do this? It's because we mimic the Father. This is our story as Christians. We understand the story of adoption because as former orphans who've been taken in, we get that in a very intimate and personal way. We sing about it, we read about it, we study about it, we write about it. We get this. I want you to think about adoption for a minute from the parent's vantage point. At great personal cost does someone adopt. There is proactive love that goes on with adoption. It's not, let me see if that kid has enough merit and some things they could really add to my family. It's a family giving themselves to a child. There's also great delight in this. Hard, yes, but delightful, absolutely. Look at Ephesians 1.5. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. What a lie from Satan that God just sort of has to take us in because he's God, it's his character, and he sort of sort of has to do it, but not because he delights in you. Not because he chose to do this. Not because he wanted to do this. Ephesians tells us differently, friends. I want to set one sort of framework that sort of frames our idea about adoption this morning, and that is this. That adopted equals wanted. I don't know if this is still true, but on the on the playgrounds of West San Jose, where I grew up, there was a certain teasing component to the word adopted. Yeah? Well, you were adopted. And that was some kind of a zinger to someone. And no one would want to be adopted. They would be ashamed of that title. They would feel unwanted and unclaimed. If you were adopted, there was a sense of probably that you would hide that truth. You know what God does? He comes and redeems things, doesn't he? He comes and redeems the word adopted. Instead, adopted means chosen. Instead, adopted means you're delighted in. This is a title that you could proclaim from the rooftops. You don't hide it and hope it doesn't come up in conversation. You say, I'm adopted. And Christians, we ought to understand this. After traveling 13 hours with two toddlers, I don't remember much about landing in San Francisco last March. I was a zombie And not good for much except to keep myself upright and smile for a few pictures. But I am eternally grateful 
that someone there at the airport had their camera at the ready, and they caught the very moment that our newest children, Everly and Tate, met their siblings. When I look at this picture, I think about this reality. You know, Eli, the older one in the picture, he's the very picture of the warm welcome we have in Christ. What has Tate done for Eli at this point? Nada. That's Spanish for zero. Nothing, right? No merit. Just just a wide-open welcome into his arms. Tegan has the arms of acceptance wide open as Everly, who's landing in a strange country in a strange place, meeting a bunch of strange people, is just welcomed in. Here's what I love about this picture. Because I know who the people are in it, the backs of the heads, those are biological cousins of our family. So that's, that's one layer removed from our intimate, immediate family that are there at the airport. And, and we kept telling Everly and Tate, you have a huge group of people who love you and can't wait to meet you. They didn't speak much English then, so I don't think they understood. But I think they understood in their spirit. And then looking on with a little bit of puzzlement and ready for the beach is Ava Palm. What, what I love about this, what I love about this, she's not so sure about it. What I love about this picture, though, is that there's a representation of the coverage that we have as a family. As we have extended and God's called us to share our umbrella and reach out, we've had the community of God come around and share their umbrella with us and provide coverage so we don't go this alone. Romans 8.1 brings up condemnation. Probably a very sensitive word for many of your stories. I want you to consider for a moment, how does condemnation affect behavior? If someone feels condemned, how do they behave? I don't know about you, but I get this image of like a tornado, a downward spiral. Condemnation breeds bad behavior, which brings on more condemnation, which turns into this vortex of terribleness. If you're at a party or a family wedding or the workplace or the bedroom, how massive is condemnation versus no condemnation? Friends, this is huge to us. The Father sends the Son. The Son, Jesus, accomplishes His mission so that legally we are now freed from condemnation. You know what the Holy Spirit does? The Holy Spirit of God enables this to be known experientially. There can, be tr- there can be things that are true of you legally that you don't experience in your life, and so your behavior doesn't change, and there's not the fruit of it. The Holy Spirit is given to let this be known experientially. No condemnation breaks shame, doesn't it? And when shame is broken, people are able to come out of hiding and, and be invited into relationship. Now we get to adoption. Adoption breaks the cycle of rejection. You're now out of hiding and maybe open to some relationship because there's no condemnation. But adoption breaks rejection. I am accepted. I am welcomed in. I am doted on. You know, parents long for their children to be secure in their love. That's part of the task of parenting. 
I want you to think with me for a minute. I think you could break up the world into four categories of people. Here's number one. People who are unsaved and they know it. God has a problem with me. I know that. I want nothing to do with him. I'm pretty sure he wants nothing to do with me. That's kind of how they live their life. Number two are people who think they are saved, but they aren't. Let me just agree with the Bible that false security is terrifying. It's being in a plane that's bound to crash, and you have a school backpack on thinking that you have a parachute on, and saying, I'm good. And when the parachutes are passed out and offered, you are utterly convinced that you're good. With your lunchbox, your pencil box, and your binder in your backpack. Thirdly, there are those who are saved and they know it. They've come to understand the requirements of salvation and they know they don't meet them. They've received them from the one who's provided it. And the very Holy Spirit of God has confirmed in their spirit that they are saved. You could probably guess the fourth category, and that is that there are people who are saved, but for a variety of reasons remain uncertain about that salvation. They wrestle with sin and a troubled conscience. They lived in sort of the shifting tides of ongoing doubt. They have not yet fully understood or experienced the full status that they enjoy. Parents long for their children to be secure in their love. Parents, do you know where you got that? We're made in the image of our Creator. That's God. God longs for His children to be secure in his love. This is Romans 8, top to bottom. Starts with no condemnation, ends with no separation. Through and through, although it covers a lot of topics, it is, it is longing for us as kids to be secure in the Father's love. From last week, remember, God hasn't left us alone, right? He's given us the Holy Spirit. And he's not just a power, but he takes up residence in us. Today, the assurance continues with a vital gift of the Spirit, which is this, acceptance and intimacy. Now, let me just do a little bit of work here on the word sons. You're going to see the word sons written through this text, and I want to do a little work. Uh, Are both males and females the bride of Christ? Say yes or no. Yes. Yes. Okay? That's a little awkward at times, right? That That I'm a bride. Are women and men sons of God? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Here's why we lose something when we go politically correct with the translation. There are other places where it's accurate to say the sons and daughters of God. It's accurate to say the children of God. But there are also times that you lose the meaning of the text if you strip it down to sons and daughters. Here's why. In ancient Rome, females didn't have legal rights. They had some, but, but they didn't have the legal rights of a son. Here's what a, here's what a daughter couldn't do. They couldn't have the full inheritance. And this text talks about the fact that as sons of God, we receive the full inheritance of God the Father. We're brought in as actual legal full entities, um, as, as much as a, as a birth son would have been brought into. So as we hear this, don't hear sexism. Don't hear putting women down. Hear the New Testament uh, writer Paul through the Holy Spirit lifting women up 
in a culture and time that is that, that would, this would have been unthinkable to include women in this way. Okay, so that's just sort of a little linguistic work before we read the the text this morning. God is a good father, and He is redeeming sons. Women, hear yourselves in that. All right. So if you're taking notes, I made it easy on you. Sons participate in purity. Look at look at Romans chapter eight, starting at verse twelve. It says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Spirit-powered sons follow the Spirit's leading this next part's really important because we could stop there and say, yeah, he's led me to the right college. He's led me to the right girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse. He's leading me right now in my financial decisions. That is all good and true, but that's not what the text is talking about. Primarily in this way. Let me start over. That spirit-powered sons follow the spirit's leading, here's the key part, into war on sin. Sons of God follow the Spirit's leading into war on sin. By the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body is what being led by the Spirit in this passage is primarily talking about. The whole first part of this and going back to 7, he's talking about this battle. Here's the key word here is that we participate in this. We have a duty to cooperate with the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. There's an old Scottish theologian named David Brown, and he wrote this. If you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. I would add this in light of Romans 8. I would add, if you don't kill sin in the Spirit, sin will still kill you. You know why? Because you don't possess the power on your own to kill sin. And you know that to be true. I have not been reading your mail. I have not been spying on you. I may not even know much about you. But I know this to be true. You've probably tried to kill sin on your own. And sin still is winning. So if you don't kill sin in the spirit, sin will still kill you. But Dave, I go to church, I read my Bible, I put lots of Christian terms around it, and I've got a prayer group. Doesn't matter. If you don't kill sin in the Spirit, sin will still win. We don't manage sin, we wage war on sin. We talked at length about that when we were in Romans 7. If you are getting cozy with sin, dating sin on the weekends, making excuses as to why it's not that bad, then you are not following the Spirit into a war on sin. Rather, you are being led by the flesh to slaughter. This passage is so stark. Life and death are at stake with this. Once in a while, I... I don't make our elders do anything, but I strongly urge our elders to do some things. And sometimes I make them read books with covers that look like this. Uh, this is a book that we read many years ago now, but Richard Pack, uh, Back, Baxter was a, a reformed guy back in the 1600s. And he wrote this, Oh, brethren, it is easier to chide at sin than to overcome it. You know who gets this really well? Parents and preachers. 
And it's so much easier to get up here and chide, kind of call out sin and denounce sin from right here than to overcome it in my own life. Parents, you are called by God to guard and shepherd and nurture and train up and teach and protect and warn your kids about sin. But it's easier to do that, as hard as all that is, it's easier to do that than to wage the war right in here in an ongoing way. It's one of the tricks of the enemy to have shepherds, either of a church or of a family, to get off track and pour all their energy into that and not keep watch on their own souls. Parents, doesn't it make sense that it ought to be an overflow of your own life and the experience you're ongoing doing in an ongoing needy way to say, Spirit, I need you to put to death the deeds of the body in my life and then you can train and teach up those that God's entrusted. In our battle with sin, there's no greater power than the kindness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. This is why if anyone ever invites you to go on like a new crusades mission where you go and battle people into the faith, say no. That's just, that's not the way of the spirit. That's the way of the flesh. Repent! You know, and you're giving them a noogie or something. That's just not how it works. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the spirit that not only empowers us, but it makes our soul sing this song that we sing. And I am loved by the Father. It's who I am. And that intimacy changes everything. Sons celebrate their relationship with the Father. In Romans 5, Paul kind of teased forward. He said this, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Then he hits the pause button. It doesn't say much about life in the Spirit till the start of chapter 7. Well, now we get to read what that Spirit is like. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the Spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Consider how these two truths kind of play off of each other. Perfect love casts out what? Fear. So that means this. If we know that I am loved by God, that that's who I am, that melts away fear. That is a way of melting away fear the way that a flashlight melts away darkness when you go walking around with it. I want you to consider your fears for a second. If you are operating in any area of your life out of fear, you are not being led by the Spirit. Now, I don't know of a person who has a long, sustained period of having absolutely no fear. That's the goal. That's the purifying work God is is forming in us. But don't beat yourself up that, wow, I still have fear. I'm just saying that if you are operating in fear in some area of your life, you are not being led by the Spirit because... Fear and love are are like oil and water. They cannot coexist. So where perfect love floods in, fear is gone. Think about some of your fears for a minute. When you give in to to temptation, aren't you fearing missing out on something? God, I have a better understanding of my pleasure than you do. Everyone else seems to be getting in on it. I'm going to go do this. That's giving in to temptation, fear of missing out. How about lashing out in anger? You know, when you lash out in anger, you might fear that justice won't happen. I saw something wrong go on. I'm going to lash out in anger to make sure that that gets made right. It's fear that the judge isn't seeing 
and isn't acting on your time frame. One more. If you're hiding out, maybe it's the fear of really being known. Maybe it's the fear that's being kind of holding you slave because of condemnation, because of rejection. And God is making all things new. Condemnation broken means this. The Spirit of God whispers to your soul, shame has no place in this life anymore. You've been set free from that. Through adoption, the spirit of rejection is broken. And that says this to you. You are never alone again. You've been chosen. You are desired. You are being doted on. You're accepted. Man, that slavery to fear is an absolute killer. Some have grown up being told they were just a bad kid. When someone's told, I'm just a bad kid, shame has this way of moving in and grabbing hold of that, whispering that kid's name. And you know what happens? They act out. Shocker, they act out in childish ways. Sometimes it's rage. Sometimes it's withdrawal. Sometimes it's being silly as a diversion. Sometimes it's being extra helpful, like just the angel child. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna overcome this just a bad kid by being the best kid ever. Sometimes it's just avoidance. It's just easier to kind of, to kind of not be around it. I can make a list of those because we've seen all of that. If all your child ever receives is correction, you know what happens? It continues the cycle. I'm just a bad kid. It must be because I keep getting lectured to about all the ways I've broken the rules. And even as I'm being lectured to about the rules I've been breaking and how I should make better choices, I already know I'm going to make the same choices. I can't keep those rules. I don't know if you've ever operated in life as a bad kid. But it's a miserable place to be. Now, sinful children do need correction. But let me tell you what they need more and before. They need connection. They need to know that they are secure in your love. And they need to be utterly convinced of that. And then receive the correction in the context of this core identity that says, I am a beloved daughter. And nothing I do will ever change that. I'm a beloved son and nothing I do will ever change that. We have an ongoing dance that plays out in our home all the time. Some lashing out has gone on. Some sin has happened. Some violation has happened. And the flesh wells up in me to correct that, to discipline that. Sometimes it's totally in love and filled with patience. Other times it's annoyance. Again? And the Spirit whispers to me, connect and then correct. Connect and then correct. And so it takes everything in me to do this, to say, hey, come over here. Come here. And I just, I just get down. Come here. And we just, have, we just have a moment where we just say, look, you are my treasured son. Your dad loves you more than you'll ever know. And you need to know that. 
Now, sometimes that takes a little while because sometimes the kid is not buying it. (laughs) They're just not. You know why? Because sometimes I'm just saying words. I'm trying to do the right thing. This is exhausting parenting. Let me just tell you that. This is godly parenting. Friends, we love, why? Because he first loved us. He connected with us before he came in and corrected us. When you hear Abba Father, it isn't so much infant talk like da-da, like that. It's intimate talk like daddy. This was made public on Instagram, so I'll say it. My 16-year-old daughter referred to me as daddy in an Instagram post. Can I just tell you, I love that. I do. I love that she's not too old to say daddy, because there's only a handful of people, more than most, but, but a handful of people that, that get to call me daddy, right? That have that, that unique relationship. You know, one of the ways Jesus absolutely infuriated the guardians of the law galaxy in his day, he referred to God, almighty creator, as his intimate loving father. Remember how infuriated people got at that? Here's what was absolutely scandalous. He preached a radical invitation. This isn't just my father. This can be your father too. And here's what's phenomenal about that. Many tender-hearted children of God, also known as future former orphans that would become his followers, responded to this invitation. And they were wearing the clothes of a prostitute. They were wearing the clothes of a traitor and a tax collector. They were wearing the clothes of someone who had many failed marriages and a live-in boyfriend at the same time. They were wearing the clothes of social stigma because of some kind of a health ailment that put them on the outside. And they responded to this invitation to have the same father Jesus preached about. Even when impossible was all these people heard, the spirit of Jesus confirmed in their spirit, you are mine. He's still doing that work today, friends. He's confirming within us. You ever notice that assurance leaks? That's why they invented reassurance, right? So so this is the ongoing work of parent. You you assure something, it's okay, I'm with you, we're going to get through this. And then they say, okay, then they don't believe you a few seconds later. So you reassure. And on and on the dance goes. Pharisees said this, we love so he will love us. Jesus says, we love because he first loved us. It's a life of grace versus a life of rules. And the life of grace people really tick off the life of rules people. Probably the best connect before correct story ever is the prodigal son. I don't know if you ever feel like the right thing to do when you're doing wrong is to run from God. Of course you do. You got that from your first parents. Let me just give you a tip. Playing hide and go seek with God is a terrible, terrible odds against you. When the prodigal son came to his senses in the middle of his ruin, what did he do? He had the good sense to go home. And his mind couldn't even wrap around the idea that maybe my father, I've so violated everything that he is and stands for in my rights, 
I can't even get my head around him accepting me as a son. Maybe I could be one of his hired servants. Do you remember the story? So he rehearses. You've done this before. He rehearses what he's going to say on that journey home. He's in a distant country. And he's rehearsing how maybe I could just be one of the you know hired servants. But as he comes... To the radically loving father. His little speech about, I'm really sorry and don't take me as a son, I'll just slip in as one of the slaves, is interrupted by embrace, by kisses, by the wide open arms that says, shh, enough with sorry and with sin and with speeches. Get over here! You're my boy! You were lost and now you're found. You were dead and now you're alive. Get the barbecue fired up. We're having a party. God connects with us before he corrects us. Can you imagine the transformed core identity of that prodigal? Some of you can because you've lived it. We're about to sing a song called Come Home Running. And many of you have prayed for us this last year because you know that our daughter in particular for the last year, has really struggled at nighttime. You know, no condemnation invites us out of hiding. No rejection invites us into relationship. And that's scary business. That's really scary. And I have the privilege, many nights, of hearing the words of the Holy Spirit to my own soul coming out of the mouth of my wife. Because on many nights, when our daughter is screaming in terror, and there's no kind of logical external reason of why this should be months and months and months and months later, I hear my wife patiently, and if you've ever been with a screaming child for five minutes, this is challenging. This is supernatural. I hear patiently and lovingly, washing over this truth with her, Everly, you're safe now. Everly, you're with your family. We're never going to leave you. Everly, you're loved. And as she just pours these out over, there is something in my spirit, and Romans 8 gives voice to this, that confirms, man, this is God's message to me as a child. 